if, for example, my goals this month are all about like launching a workshop next quarter and also just like doing a lot of my admin stuff, but then I go viral on TikTok, maybe my whole goal doesn't change, but I can use some of that buffer time that I had to just create more TikTok videos like that one or reply to some of those comments if I think that that growth will contribute to something that's a bit more of like a larger goal for me. Because on a platform like that, you don't want to let that moment go to waste. You want to take advantage of it. Um, But that doesn't mean you necessarily have to drop exactly what you're doing now. It's Mitzi Mike, and this is the Wave Social Podcast powered by Arcade Studios, a show for brand builders, marketers, and anyone else who wants to make waves online. We sit down with experts and tastemakers behind today's up-and-coming brands. Today on the show, we have Austin Tassone. Yeah, she is a fashion and beauty content creator, consultant, and entrepreneur based in New York City. After launching her blog in 2012 and creating content consistently while working as a magazine editor and content director, Austin built up her platforms and went full-time with content creation in April 2021. She's passionate about teaching more influencers to value their work, build their dream audience, and make sustainable income from creating content. And she gets into all of that on this episode. It was really like inspiring almost to hear how much she does and how hard she works. She's like such a hustler. Yeah, and I think it's always cool to see someone who's an OG. Yeah. And when I say an OG, I mean they started with a blog. Like totally. before 2020, mm-hmm. you know, she started, I think you said, yeah, 2012. And uh, I feel like there's so many, so many learnings in that time and so many opportunities that if you were like us and we slept on it, yeah. you missed it. Yeah. But she's also managed to stay really relevant, which is why I was excited to have her on the show. Like she's really good at being so consistent with content. Like if you follow her, you're getting something every day, which is yeah. So hard to do. Um, so I love talking to her. I learned so much about SEO in this episode too, like how she uses SEO to kind of inform the blog post she's going to write and the content she's going to create. And it's actually paid off a lot for her. So if you don't know much about SEO um, and you want to learn more, this is like a good little crash course. Yeah, I think a lot of people have questions about that these days. Like is mm-hmm. SEO even relevant still? And that's dialogue that we have a lot with our clients. But I think really what I took out of this is that if you're working on your SEO, you're investing in your brand long term. Totally. You can pay for clicks and for followers and for even for conversions at this point. But if that's the only way that you can get conversions or build your audience, then when you, the money goes away, the engagement goes away. Yeah. She was so awesome to learn from. Um, and also, before we get into the interview, I want to talk about our merch. So we have still stickers available. These are really fun to put on your water bottle, as I've done here. Um, they're so cute. They're like new and improved from the last season. I love that there's like inbox at zero and mute and do end of day and do not disturb. And they're just such cute stickers. You can honestly put them anywhere. You can put them on your phone, on your laptop, on your I don't know what else we put them on people's faces in our shoots. So speaking of OG and like blogs and stuff like that, we also have wingdings on our stickers oh my and gosh. some of our branding this year, this season. And uh, that brings me back to like high school computer class. So. I didn't know what wingdings were until like, I don't know, four months ago. And now you got to know the wingdings. You keep talking about it. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's watching or listening. I feel like there's more people than just me that would, changed whatever they were writing in computer class to wingdings when they went to the bathroom so I that never people did couldn't that. read it. I never did that. It was the original code. Nice. 
Well, hope you enjoyed this episode. It's a good one. And here comes Austin. All right. Austin, welcome to the Wave Social Podcast. We're so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. So we want to start by talking about your blog, Keep Calm and Chiffon, which is such a great name, by the way. Um, You started way back in 2012, which feels like forever ago. Talk to us about why you started your blog and where things are at with it now. Oh my gosh. You know, I am so relieved that I do still like the name. That was very in the height of all of the keep calm and carry on internet memes and stuff that were coming out at the time. And I just love that it was a play on fashion, which was the initial focus of my blog for so many years. And I mainly started it because I finally had a summer where I wasn't really doing anything. I was off from school. I hadn't started like college yet. I was just looking for a fun thing to do. And I had read a lot of other bloggers like Brian Boy, Rumi Neely, Jane Aldridge from Sea of Shoes, so many of these original fashion bloggers that really started to make a splash and make a name for themselves. And I thought, I, there must be an easy way for me to like set up a domain and see how that goes. So it initially started as I just wanted to document my outfits over a summer and try creating a website. I had no idea what I was doing. The posts were an outfit photo and a sentence, if anything, but I was just enjoying it so much. And I ended up keeping it going throughout college. And then beyond that, while I was working full time, and that was almost 10 years ago. Now it was summer of 2012 that that launched. So I did not expect to still be posting. I just uploaded a new post today, even to it after all this time. Yeah, what that's are, impressive. What and are your see, posts like? Oh, sorry, Mitzi. What sorry. are your posts like today compared to back then? Because like, it sounds like a photo with a sentence is kind of like Instagram, you know, but right. obviously it must have evolved over time. You know, it started, there were platforms that were really fashion specific. Like there's this platform called Lookbook that was very early Instagram yes. days. You know what I'm talking about? It was a photo with maybe like one hashtag and just a little description and Again, when I started it, I was just thinking of me. I thought it would be fun. I was, you know, blogging just almost like more of a journal. I wasn't necessarily thinking that there was anyone reading it other than maybe my mom. And after I started just reading more and learning more about the industry and seeing what other people were doing, there were so many more posts that were like in service of the readers first versus just making it all about you. And it would be how to style this outfit, like how you put this together, proportions, tips, what's trending right now, what I'm buying right now. And I started to understand that you could really curate a whole experience, even just in the context of like one post, which I thought was interesting. So now it's rare that you'll find a blog post on my site that's fewer than 500 words. I really value length. I really value description. I really value diving deeper onto topics where I wasn't able to do, where you're not able to do that on something like Instagram, maybe, or where I wasn't doing that in the beginning of my blog. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about your development as a writer, because you've said that it, your blog has helped you in kind of launching some of your more like your skills, like writing and editing and things like that. Um, And then that has obviously served you well as you transition to other jobs, which we'll talk about as well. Um, Can you talk to us about like how that the blog kind of catapulted some of that development of those skills for you? Yeah, well, another reason I decided to kind of keep up with the blog and maintain it was because I really wanted to work at a magazine. 
I had always grown up reading magazines. I loved them. I loved getting them in the mail, like running to the mailbox and seeing which subscriptions came in that day. And most of the magazine internships I was looking at required writing samples. I was like, I'm like 18 years old. Where do I, where do I go to get published to get samples to qualify for right. these internships? And so I did end up for my first editorial internship, which was at Nylon, submitting a blog post as one of my writing samples. And I think that that was at the very beginning of where I was starting to develop more as a writer. I have no problem sharing my kind of tone and voice, but I wanted to refine that even further to, again, like really serve the people who were showing up and actually reading the posts, commenting on them, writing me an email to let me know they had read them and make it valuable for them over time. And so it did get longer, it did get more detailed, it get, did get more like sophisticated too. But even today, there's still little asides of humor in my writing. There's, I like when I like doing things like, but Austin, that doesn't make any sense. And then I explain, here's why. So I think that you learn as you write though. And one of the best ways to get better at writing is to really practice it a lot. Yeah. And that's one of the best ways to get better at anything is like to just do it. And I'm trying to do more video, like short form video on TikTok and it's so painful and it's so cringy and I know it's cringy, but you have to just like keep flexing the muscle in order to get better. You have to be bad. So I have a lot of respect for people who kind of like just stick to it and keep growing um, because I think that's a really important skill set to have as a digital creator. Yeah. And I saw, it's funny you bring up the TikTok thing. I saw a girl the other day who was posted a really funny video that was like, just be your cringiest self. Go out there and make them cringe, make them feel weird because guess what? You're out there doing it and they're not. And I think that one misconception about content creation is, well, yeah, I could take a photo and upload it and and it's like, well, but do you? And so people who don't do it and think it's so easy. Like, okay, well, let's see you do it and see, you know, what you uncover in the process of you have to edit the photo for a brand partnership. You have so many things you have to address in the caption and, you know, things you want to get right in terms of FTC guidelines and all of this different stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, I love that perspective. Um, if you were talking to like a creator or someone who wants to do some do what you're doing now. And would you recommend that they start with a blog? I feel like it's pretty rare to have a blog, but like, is it, would you change, like, if you were, if someone was starting now, what would you say about having a blog versus not having a blog? Well, what's cool now is that there are so many different platforms and you can pick what plays to your skill set and your interests the most. So if you are, you know, really funny, you're not afraid to put yourself out there, you like, dancing and trending sounds and hopping around, like then go on TikTok and build there. You know, if you're a writer and you have no interest in being on camera, you have no interest in even maybe using or taking your own photos, right? You can use stock imagery. You can write a blog. If you're comfortable talking, you can do a podcast. Like you can really pick and choose whether it is an audio first or visual first medium, what plays to your strengths. So I would never tell someone who is, you know, like an exuberant personality who's out there jumping around, like doing fun things, growing a big following on a platform like TikTok, like you should really start a blog right now because maybe that's not the right move for them. But what I do think about blogs is that there are a lot of them, but that doesn't mean that there's not space for new ones. And it all boils down to SEO, search engine optimization, which I'm obsessed with, I'm sure we'll get into. And that 
can really differentiate you and set you up for success. Because then once you understand what people are looking for, and if there are any voids in some of these niches that maybe you can fill with your own unique skill set, your own approach to things, or your own voice, especially as a blogger, then you can create content that will not only be really beneficial to people when they first discover it, but will also serve you as a creator because it'll continue to get served in Google's algorithm and continue to rank in search over time. When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. Love that. I'm curious um, because even for people that don't follow you yet, uh, obviously you've got the blog going, but then you're active on social. Do you find that you've really connected your various platforms and like one informs the other, or do you kind of have a different approach and different content flow for each? This is something that I am always sort of asking myself as a multifaceted content creator because I started with fashion and beauty as my two big things that I just love them both. I love my makeup. I love getting dressed. I love picking out an outfit. Um, And then I started sharing the behind the scenes though of how all of this works and people are really interested in that. That's really taken off. So in terms of the different platforms right now, I would say that Instagram is kind of my catch-all platform. It lets me be my most authentic self and show as many different facets of my life as possible, whether that's fashion, beauty, life here in New York City, or like behind the scenes of some of the content creation I do. Um, And then right now I am, I have a bit more of like a growth strategy for TikTok and for YouTube. And for those platforms, the content creation tips are really working for me. So I'm kind of doubling down on those platforms to to kind of see what what I can get out of it there. Nice. I um I love that you have like such a diverse range of platforms that you're on. And I feel like a lot of people are talking more about how important it is to diversify. And I also love that you have an email list, which I feel like is also pretty rare. Um, and I personally feel like it's so valuable to have people's emails because it's like a direct line of communication for people. Um, what kind of advice do you have about kind of flipping your audience or getting them to go on other platforms. Like I know a lot of people built great big followings on Instagram, but getting those followers to say YouTube or to their newsletter, like that's a whole other ball game. Like do you have any advice or, or is there anything that's really worked for you to, to kind of transfer people over to different platforms? Such a good question. And one thing I'll add from kind of the last question too, is when you're creating content for all these different platforms, you want to understand like what point in the, you have to kind of put your business hat on and say, what point in like the customer acquisition, you know, process am I even at right now? So TikTok and Reels are great opportunities to introduce your content to people who have no idea who you are. So they, you don't need to necessarily tell them about like your course that you're creating right now, but maybe if you create a great marketing video and you are later going to create a course about marketing, they'll like that video and follow you for more like marketing tips and start to get to know you. So 
I think of my email newsletter subscribers as my most invested, most engaged community who totally knows and understands my whole vibe. They more than likely follow me on more than one platform as well. So maybe they're not just from TikTok. They probably found me on Instagram and YouTube or some other combination of things. And I have always liked the idea of having an email list, but I really wasn't sure how to grow it for the longest time. And I, as I mentioned earlier, really like SEO and search engine optimization. So one of the things that I was reading of what you should do with an email newsletter is have a freebie or some kind of incentive for someone to want to sign up for your list. So I created this SEO tip sheet. I was really proud of it. And I think that it is a good resource, but it wasn't the right resource for the email list that I was hoping to attract at the time, because that means that I'm assuming anyone who signs up has a blog and that is more than likely not the case. So I decided to, over the summer last year, take a step back and I went through my Instagram DMs and was looking for like, what is the most asked question from someone on Instagram right now? And it was overwhelmingly like, I'm just getting started. Like I launched a TikTok last year, but I don't really know what I'm doing. How do I get started as an influencer? And so that led to me creating this, I think it's like 10 pages. It's a mini ebook called the Influencer Launchpad. So that's my new freebie now for my email newsletter. And I plug it in blog posts and YouTube videos. It's linked in my Instagram bio. And that is a really successful funnel to getting people on my list because it feels a little less like sign up for my email newsletter because it's going to be great and more like, hey, here's a free resource that is tailored Mm -hmm. exactly to the biggest asked question in my DMs right now. And Mm -hmm. there's quizzes in there about like we were talking about which platform might be best for you. There's 30 free content ideas you can tailor to any niche. There's, you know, tips about like deciding on your content pillars. And it really addresses the overview of like, hey, are you getting started? Do you want to like implement all of these steps? Here's what you can do. And it feels like something really substantial that's totally worth creating your email for, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I might sign up for that. That sounds awesome. (laughs) I want to talk about SEO because we, I mean, I love that you talk about SEO because a lot of creators don't even maybe understand what SEO does or understand how it can benefit your business or like how to even do it. So even brands don't understand. I know that's true. Yeah. Um, Any advice or like quick tips you can offer on that front? Like I know like with YouTube too, SEO is so important there too, because it is a search engine. What kind of things do you like at the very basic level? Do you think that everyone should be trying or thinking about when it comes to SEO? Yeah. So as you alluded to, there are search engine controlled platforms like Google, YouTube, and even Pinterest, I would group in there. And then there are these algorithm controlled platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. So to make search engine platforms happy, you really have to think about user intent and what might lead someone to a resource that you've created, whether that be a YouTube video or a blog post or something else. So I know that I use Google at least... I don't know, three times a day, maybe. And Mm -hmm. I never really scroll past the first like three search results. So the question for a blogger or even a YouTube creator is how can I start ranking for keywords that I want to create content about to attract like my ideal audience? So let's take, you know, 
blogging, for example, if I wanted to create a blog post and I'm a fashion blogger and I wanted to do like a spring dress roundup, I would want to start to find a keyword that people might be searching for. But the problem is if I'm a new blogger and the keyword I want to go after is spring dresses and I look at who is currently ranking on Google and Google grades every site from a scale of zero to a hundred, it's called domain authority for anyone who might not be familiar. If you know, a domain authority site like the New York Times style is ranking for that, or like Cosmo or Vogue, those have pretty high domain authorities. And as a new blogger, Google might not know me yet, doesn't trust my site, doesn't see me as an expert in that topic. So it's going to be really hard for me to compete with those other big, you know, platforms, not to mention that there's probably a really high monthly search volume for that keyword. So when you're first starting out, it only makes sense to go after not just keywords with a smaller monthly search volume, you know, just to kind of narrow the pool down a little bit, but also lower competition in terms of who is writing about them. Um, So, I mean, I, for one example that I did a few years ago, I saw that there was a keyword phrase where it was like, is YouTube a job or a hobby? And I was like, okay, I think I can take this keyword and write a blog post about it and write about people who make a lot of money from their YouTube videos. And at the time, the competition for that was basically zero. And there were like 10 searches a month. So I wrote a really thoughtful blog post that was at least a thousand words outranking, you know, the other sites there. And I started ranking number one for that keyword. Over time, though, now that monthly search volume has gone up. It's still not a lot, but maybe it's like 50 or 60 monthly searches, and I'm still the first result. So even as that keyword's growing, now that I've ranked number one for like kind of an easier keyword, that is assigned to Google. Well, she ranked number one for this, and now she writes something similar, and people like that, then maybe she can rank higher for that. Google algorithm is very complex, but that's kind of the gist of it. Mm-hmm. That is a really good summary. And then how do you get that information of like what other platforms or authorities are are writing or targeting a specific keyword for the creators out there? I use a combination of tools and most of them are either free or very low cost because um, I, again, like sharing this information with other creators and I don't want them to have to spend like 300 a month on SEO software as some like enterprise or corporate organizations might do. But my favorites for getting started are Moz, M-O-Z, to determine the domain authority of a website. And you can also use Moz to do like page analysis and link analysis of other people's sites to see how much traffic they're getting from certain keywords or what pages of theirs are most popular too. So that's a really great free tool. And then my other favorite that I'll mention is Keywords Everywhere to get that monthly search volume and say how many searches a month are happening for this keyword. And that's a Google Chrome extension. You can pay $10 for 100,000 search credits, which is a good deal, I think. And it'll also show you on the side some related keywords. So again, to go back to the spring dresses example, if that's too broad of a keyword, maybe it's spring dresses for women 2022. We'll narrow that search down and keywords everywhere will kind of suggest that to you. That is so so many good tips. (laughs) That's the practical value we like. I know. I love it. I want to pivot back to talk about some of the really cool things that you've done in print and in the magazine industry. So can you talk to us about how you got into the magazine industry and what that looked like? 
Yeah, so as we briefly mentioned at the beginning of this call, I really wanted to intern at magazines when I was in college and work at a magazine after school. So I interned at several publications here at the city, and I also went to Barnard College in New York City, so that made it easy to intern during the semester or get summer housing and things like that. And I had in like nylon was one of my internships and when i tell you that growing up nylon was just the coolest of cool magazines that i just thought was beyond and that i could never possibly be aligned with because it was too cool for me that i ended up getting a job there basically as i was graduating i was just completely blown away and i was an assistant editor for the print team and was in charge of the fashion news section of the magazine. I got to also do some art stuff because I had an art history background from college and it was just so much fun. And since it was such a small and scrappy print team, I also was just really eager to be involved in everything and probably not getting paid enough to do this, but would volunteer to like write things for the website or do a Snapchat takeover back in 2016, like yeah. to cover an event or things like that. And I think everyone just really appreciated that I was, you know, jumping in to, to help with other opportunities. And it was my first time getting to like attend fashion week too. I was getting invited to shows. I was like, this really is just as much fun as I thought it was going to be. Obviously a lot of work, but it was really just great. And I got to, I had been writing for years, but to really start to hone in skills as an editor too, which I think I'm much more naturally a writer than I am an editor, but even for those short, you know, fashion news stories that could only be a hundred words. Like it's really hard to write great, short, engaging copy. You can ramble as much as you want in digital and in a print feature that's like 3000 words, but to really help people tell their stories in that way, definitely also made me a better writer later on. That's awesome. If you're a podcast host or someone wanting to be interviewed on podcasts as a guest, visit podmatch.com. Podmatch automatically connects ideal podcast guests and hosts together for interviews. We always say it works just like a dating app, but instead of connecting you for dates, it connects you for podcast interviews. Podmatch has connected over 85,000 guests and hosts together for interviews that listeners love, all while saving you countless hours of administrative work through built-in automations. If you're ready to level up your podcast interviews on either side of the mic, start today by visiting podmatch.com. Is there, I know that Nylon, like that sounds like a dream, like literally a movie scene, but unfortunately Nylon did fold. Can you talk to us about like what you learned through that process and, and how you pivoted into like the next thing that you went on to do? Yeah, it's the best way to compare it is just getting dumped by a guy you thought you were in love with and you thought you were going to marry. Oh, man. Um, Cause I was totally blindsided when Nylon print folded. It was also in the middle of fashion week and I truly was just shell shocked and didn't know what to say or where to go. I stood on like the corner of Prince and Green Street in Soho with a box of stuff on my desk and was like, what just happened to me? <laughs> um, uh, I should also mention that I went to work at interview magazine shortly after that I was only out of work for like a month. And then I was at interview for eight months and the same thing happened there as well. So got laid off twice, was like, you know, 23 or 24, whatever I was. And I was like already so excited about this industry and felt really jaded and disappointed. But I think that that was just the signal to me that as much as I love print and I'll always, you know, hope that print magazines exist in some way, that there is a really hard 
balance between, you know, who's actually reading these magazines versus where is the attention of everyone right now. And I knew from earlier on that the attention was online. It was with digital. So immediately after, you know, those layoffs, I was really interested in trying to freelance write, but freelance writing <laughs> doesn't necessarily pay very well. And so what ended up happening was in kind of a year and a half after those magazines folded was I was making maybe like 50 to 60% of my income from writing for magazines and got to write for like Refinery29, HuffPost, Teen Vogue, Fashionista, all these other places that I was so lucky and excited to get bylines at. But then about like 30% of my revenue started coming from my blog and social media channels, which was really shocking to me. This was when I really started pushing back on brands and saying, hey, do you have any more money than that? Or, hey, can you pay me for this? And it was also the time where like, just I was creating more and more and showing the behind the scenes, even just on Instagram stories, like, hey guys, here's my life as a freelancer. Here's what I do in the morning. Here's how I maintain a routine. Some days I don't have a routine. And that is also where I started kind of getting questions and DMs from people like, well, how are you writing for these magazines? How are you working with these brands? You know, not for nothing, but you're a small creator. So are they paying you? How does that work? And kind of starting to get those questions there. And so that was really interesting to me while I was still trying to figure out which direction I was hoping to go in. Wow, that's really cool. How did you like, I'm sure being in the magazine industry allowed you to kind of like network with people so that you could tap into, you know, other opportunities as a freelancer later. But um, I know you also created a resource for people for pitching themselves. Um, what was your pitching experience like? And what kind of like prompted you to create this resource for people? Yeah, I learned so much being a freelancer trying to figure out, you know, some people who promised they would be there for me when I got laid off weren't and then some new people who I didn't even know stepped up and were just amazing resources for me. And so I had to really start just not taking it personally. You know, if this person is too busy or they can't commission someone or they don't have a budget, just move on to the next. And it's really hard for writers and I think also just creators in general when we are so attached to our work and when it does feel so personal um, to just try to like get in that mentality of, okay, that didn't work out onto the next and not dwell on it. And pitching is a little bit thankless. You know, you can send out the cold pitch response rate for pitches is like between one and 5%. So for every hundred cold pitches you're sending out, you can expect one to five responses. And that doesn't even guarantee that anything will come of it. That just might guarantee that you get a response. So it was a lot of trial and error to get in touch with editors, to figure out who was writing different things. And I really wanted to write for Fashionista, I remember, had sent them a bunch of pitches, got rejected like three times in a row. But that editor said to me, do you want to get on the phone for like 15 minutes? And I can just tell you a bit more about like what we typically look for. That was the best gift I could have ever asked for because those 15 minutes just clarified a ton for me. And I learned, you know, I was pitching a bunch of shopping roundups to her. She was like, that's not how it works. We get SEO keywords. We assign stories to writers. I can add you to that list if you want. And then you can pick like three to five stories a month to write. I was like, oh, okay. So wow. then I don't even have to come up with the ideas. You'll send me that. Or, you know, they had different series. Like they had one called Label to Watch or How I'm Making It. And so it's like, if you know any up and coming brands, if you know anyone who's really successful in this industry, those are verticals we always need you know, help with. So like we will always pretty much 
go with a pitch if it's a good one that's a fit for us there. And I just started trying to do that with more editors and looking for more pitch guidelines, like well and good, I know has pitching guidelines for writers. And that really helped me get more success on the freelance writing side of it. And I tried to take those same strategies and also apply them to blogging and to pitching brands. And that ended up also working out in my favor. And really, even just getting on the phone with someone for 15 minutes is one of the best like relationship building tactics I think that there is. And the beauty of it now is, too, you can do that from anywhere. We're all very used to, yeah, a phone call or a Zoom meeting. It used to be like, oh, next time you're in New York, you don't have to come here if you don't want to. You could do so much virtually. But the resource right on pitch that I created basically did stem from all of those DMs from people saying, I want to write for Fashionista. I want to write for HuffPost. I want to work with ASOS or Primark or whoever I was working with at the time. And I used to sit there and write out all of my tips in many different DMs before we had desktop DMs and was kind of getting tired and felt like I was repeating myself. So that's where I kind of got the idea to, at first I was going to do a blog post and I'm really glad I decided to go with the ebook just because I do feel like that is a level up from some of the basic tips that you can offer someone. And it really now is like, I've also now put out a version 2.0 of it where it's now double the length that used to be. It really goes in depth, you know, it's beautifully like designed and everything, which shout out to my graphic designer who gave me a great ebook template in Canva. And now it's the complete, the complete pitching strategy. And I don't have to repeat myself and I don't have to um, give it away for free either. Right. Austin, you're a hustler. Like that is so impressive that you did all of that stuff and like learned it all and just is sharing it with so many people. I think that's really valuable. Yeah, it's amazing. So that was when you were coming up. I'd love to fast forward to today and just hear a little bit more about how you describe your job or career. I guess it's not a job because you work for yourself. Um, What do you call yourself and what does your typical work week look like? How do you organize yourself and your time? Give us the details. Right. So I have no problem. Like I have no problem telling strangers I'm a content creator. I think that I've heard other content creator friends of mine who do it full time say, oh, I just say I'm like a consultant or I work in social media. I don't mind saying content creator. And I say that instead of influencer, not because I have a problem with the word influencer. I just think that since I really do focus on putting out videos and blog posts and developing content, that it's kind of just more encompassing of what I do versus if I just had a presence on like an Instagram or a TikTok. So I say I'm a fashion and beauty content creator. And in addition to that, I also am really passionate about just showing people the behind the scenes and like how all of this actually works. So of course, each week will look a little bit different for me. But what I like to do is set quarterly goals and then go in and set monthly goals so that I can kind of stay focused on different things at different times. So for example, over the holidays in Q4, one of my big focuses was landing brand deals because that is one of the most lucrative times for content creators to work with brands and most brands from some article I've read, I hope I'm not misquoting, spend about like 60% of their marketing budget during that last quarter of the year. So I had set out a goal to earn, you know, at least five figures for brand partnerships and to pitch at least 20 brands and hopefully work with at least five. And I was able to 
work with at least five and hit my five figures in like revenue from brand deals that quarter, which was really exciting. This Q1 where we're talking right now, it's a little bit like of a slower time for brand deals. So I have more kind of backend things that I'm working on right now. So my, some of my goals were to like figure out how to launch um, a subscription community membership through Patreon, really just get some of my admin backend stuff in order in terms of like tax season and just even putting better systems in place, backing up all of my YouTube content so that it's not just on hard drives, but also on the cloud and really just streamlining my processes. And then in the next quarter in the spring, I think I'm going to go kind of on like a content sprint and maybe pick one platform a month to really focus on and just do a deeper dive into to try to grow my platforms more. So I like operating at that quarterly level and picking like three goals I think I can accomplish because it gives me a sense of structure for my weeks that isn't just oh, should I post something to Instagram today? It's like, well, if you're going to post something to Instagram at all, first of all, how does that play into this larger goal? And something I learned from uh, one of my other jobs working at a tech startup was you want to spend like maybe 75% of your efforts towards your goals, but you have to leave some time every week to deal with emails, Instagram DMs, going to an event maybe, or networking, you know, things that maybe don't necessarily factor into how am I going to make money next, but just are necessary for the like general operation of your business. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you decide what your quarterly goals are? Even maybe let's get away from revenue or like volume of deals, but even I feel like we've, we've talked to some other content creators and people that maybe started with a blog and ended up in having an e-com brand or something like that. And a lot, I feel like a lot of what they say is that, when they started creating content similar to what you've told us, they were just doing it for themselves. So is it just about what they wanted to say, what they wanted to show? But I'm curious if that's still the case for you. Like I know that you often will, some some of it will be dictated by keywords that you want to target or questions that people are asking. But I'm curious beyond that, how much of what you're producing is dictated by what you feel your audience wants on a given platform and how much is it dictated by what you just want to say or what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that on the audience front, it's really helpful for creators to just kind of always be keeping track of like what the audience is commenting, what they're DMing you, what they're asking about, because those can all serve as future content topic ideas. So for my YouTube channel, I have like a full (laughs) spreadsheet where I have one tab that's just called content ideas. And on that tab is like, it goes down into the hundreds and it could be a comment from someone that I think can be a future video idea. Or for example, if I know I'm gonna launch like a workshop, maybe I'll wanna do a YouTube video related to that topic and then later promote the workshop in it. Um, But I think that keeping track of what your audience is asking, whether it's on a note on your phone or just in a notion or wherever you like to note keep is really, really helpful. Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to do every little thing that they ask you to do, but if they are directly asking you for something repeatedly, it is probably something good to create a resource for, because then you can save yourself the time. The next person, someone DMs, the next time someone DMs you and says, um, 
oh, you know, like, what are, like, what's that thing from Amazon in your house or something? And you could link to, like, the video home tour of, like, all of the crazy Amazon things in my house or whatever the case may be. So I think I have a pretty good sense of my audience at this point. I think, like, now I know the questions they're going to ask and I know what they're going to be interested in seeing the most. So I am able to create content with that in mind, usually. In terms of, though, deciding, like, what goals to focus on for longer-term things, I used to get really antsy about setting quarterly goals because even in this industry, you know, things change really quickly and it's kind of hard to keep up with. And I even say, though, if, for example, my goals this month are all about, like, launching a workshop next, you know, next quarter and also just, like, doing a lot of my admin stuff, but then I go viral on TikTok, maybe my whole goal doesn't change, but I can use some of that buffer time that I had to just create more TikTok videos like that one or reply to some of those comments if I think that that growth will contribute to something that's a bit more of like a larger goal for me. Because on a platform like that, you don't want to let that moment go to waste. You want to take advantage of it. Um, But that doesn't mean you necessarily have to drop exactly what you're doing now. So I try to give myself a little bit of leeway when it comes to goals, but I also do like just setting them and going in on them. And again, some of it is even seasonality. Like next quarter, I really hope to focus on content creation. And that's because I'm in New York right now. It's February. I'm freezing. I don't want to go outside and shoot photos all day or shoot street style reels. I'll be miserable. Whoever's helping me will be miserable. So I can focus on creating content that I can create here, you know, to keep up consistently on my platforms. But I'm not going to want to be spending every day working on that. Same thing with, you know, brand deals and creating content there. I might also, if I know that Q4 is going to be bigger for brand deals, try to amp up some content on the platforms that I want to work on in Q3 so that they can see that I'm active. They can see my most recent engagement. They can understand what my audience is interested in as we're getting closer to that time. So I think that It depends. And I think that it's also really hard, I'll say, to focus on goals that will help you out later on, but that are a little bit slow going now. So one of those for me is developing my passive revenue streams. So I make ad revenue, for example, on both YouTube and my blog, which is another great thing about searchable content. And right now, like I have a baseline of money. I can pretty much guess how much I'm going to make each month, but I would love to like 5x that. 10x that, whatever the case may be. So then the question is not just about maintenance. The question is about growth and how can I create content that's going to lead to that growth that I want later on. And once you have, as a content creator, at least one passive revenue stream in place, that then gives you the freedom to go focus on some of the other things too. Like, sure, I would love to sit around and create reels all day for like a month, but Am I getting paid from Reels right now? I'm not. I don't have Reels bonuses. I don't have any Reels brand deals lined up right now. So if I know that I have a passive revenue stream that's bringing in something, at least, I can go off and focus on other things. Or how about also I could take a break? Like maybe I could take a week off, go on vacation. It's really hard to detach as a freelancer or as someone who's self-employed and actually take that time for yourself but setting up you know passive revenue streams like my ads my affiliates and my digital products gives me peace of mind that at least like something's happening 
if I want to take a break. Mm-hmm. Totally. Making money while you sleep. Yeah, that's the the goal. I feel like you you almost treat your content and like your content empire as like a magazine almost. Like you're almost like thinking of it as like with like advertisers and things like that. So I I think it's really really smart and maybe a lot of people don't think of their content as like almost like a business and like even attaching quarterly goals like that's very business minded which I would love to see more content creators like really take their business more and treat it more like a business and maybe they don't have that background one thing I want to know like you started um, you mentioned you started your blog and like fashion and beauty now I see a lot of your content is more around like supporting influencers and more of like some of that business stuff that maybe a lot of people don't know about and would you still call yourself like a fashion and beauty? Like, is that still your niche, would you say? Or do you feel like your niche is kind of pivoted? And then also like an educator. Yeah. As a follow up, like what, what's your, what's your thought on niches? Like, I think there's a lot of pressure for people to like define their perfect niche so that they can go viral and like get a bunch of traction and stuff like that. Like what's your perspective on that? This is definitely something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and I potentially might like drive myself nuts thinking about someday. Um, But I think for the most part, yes, I do still see myself as a fashion and beauty content creator because I am still creating that content at the very least on Instagram and I can still show up as like a fashion girl or as a beauty girl on TikTok, you know, I think that I can incorporate those things a little more in the sense of like, I could talk about influencer tips while I'm putting my makeup on, or I could talk about SEO while I'm wearing a really cool outfit to catch someone's eye or do those things. And right now, I I know there are a lot of course creators out there who have kind of had experiences in the past, like, oh, I, I've worked with brands like this, this and this, and now I'm teaching you how to do it. I still just want to be in it though, too. Like, I still want to know right now if a brand is reaching out to me what type of you know exclusivity or usage are they asking for? How does this work? What new creator tools are out there that are good for fashion and beauty creators? And the best way for me to know all of that is to still be in it myself. And it's been really tempting to just go all in on the content creation tips front because it's what people seem to be asking me about. But I also remember that I started this because I love fashion and I love beauty and I love sharing that with people. And it is a balance and it is a challenge. I have, you know, this kind of theory about like an hourglass of content almost where on any new platform where you're starting out, you might just start posting about anything and everything that you're interested in. You kind of need some kind of test pool of data to see what works. Let's say you're on TikTok and then a video of your outfit goes viral. Then you can kind of zone in and do outfit videos, outfit videos, maybe changing things up, but still going after what that success was and replicating it. And then when you get to a certain point, people will become interested in like you and your whole lifestyle. And I think this is what a lot of people struggle with when they first start YouTube channels. And I know I certainly did was I wanted to be like the lifestyle vloggers out there that I saw. I wanted to be like Zoella and, uh, I don't know, some of these other people who are just like, oh, here's me and my boyfriend out to dinner this week. And here's me doing fashion this next week. They already have a following. Those people are interested in whatever, you know, she does or whatever anyone else like that can do. The same way that like Addison Ray on TikTok, right? Posting videos, dancing content. 
now she's doing everything. And even on a smaller scale, you might be able to look at a fashion creator who's showing an outfit and then be like, hey, where'd you get your hangers though? Like what's, how do you do your closet? And then now suddenly you can talk a little about interiors and home decor because people want to know where'd you get your hangers from? Oh, what are your favorite Amazon home finds? And, and they'll stick around to listen to that because they already know you and like you and trust you. And my YouTube channel used to be lots of different things. Right now it is mainly marketing tips. And I find that niching is, I prefer it when it's kind of platform specific. I like knowing that my YouTube is my creator resource hub, basically. And my Instagram is a bit more fashion and beauty focused with behind the scenes of that as well. And at the end of the day, like I still wanna do what makes me happy and what I love. And I'm even doing like a brand partnership right now where I'm creating fashion and beauty content for them that's not posted on my Instagram or whatever. So I'm still actively going through the creation process. And I think we'll see more brands work with creators in this way in 2022 and beyond where I'm still doing that, but maybe it's not necessarily being posted on my Instagram because maybe it wouldn't do as well as me saying, come behind the scenes of fashion week with me. So at the end of the day, if you want to post something that makes you happy and that you're proud of, I think you totally should. When it comes to growth, though, I do think following either a niche or a type of content that's been successful for you can really accelerate your growth. And then from there, it's up to you what direction you want to take it. I love that. That's such good advice because I know that's something probably a lot of people struggle with, like maybe they started talking about one thing, but as they've evolved as a person and as, you know, their interests have evolved, they're much more ingrained in a different thing. And so like, how do you pivot your niche? But it's really like, I love the description of the hourglass because I can even see in those people how they've been able to successfully do that. I want to talk about uh, brand deals. So you mentioned last year you kind of focused on getting more brand deals in Q4 and you were pitching a lot, which is really amazing. I actually follow another influencer, uh, Marianne Hewitt. She has like a million followers and she even talks about how she still pitches a lot of her brand deals, which is so interesting because you assume people with like huge following just get pitched all the time. Yeah. But there is this huge conversation, especially on TikTok right now, about you know, creators getting more paid for more brand deals in 2022. Do you have any tips for creators who maybe want to land a brand deal or have maybe never received a paid brand deal and they're like, feel like they've got the following and all that to do that? Yeah. So I first wanted to mention if you're not ready to pitch yet, but you think brands might be interested in working with you in some way, make sure that you have your contact information listed everywhere. So like in your Instagram bio, you want to put your email and have the email button in case someone's looking on desktop. You want to sign up for influencer platforms. Those are a little bit I kind of describe them like dating apps where you sign up for them. You don't really expect anything magical to happen, but if an opportunity happens to come your way, you would want the chance to at least say yes or no to it. But I think that in terms of actually pitching brands, the best thing you can do is give them proof that they'll get a return on their investment if they work with you. So if I wanted to pitch, I'll go Fenty Beauty, right? If I wanted to pitch Fenty Beauty, I bought this foundation or I bought this skin tint from them like last year and I've probably used it in a few different get ready with me videos or maybe I've added it to my beauty awards blog post at the end of the year where I go through and give awards to all of the different categories that's something that's very inspired from my magazine editor days and I can say to them hey like 
this one best skin tint of the year in my beauty awards last year. Here's me using it in a get ready with me video. And you'll see there are a few comments asking me about it. Um, it really is one of my favorite products and I would love to do something with you guys and even let them know who my audience is too. I think audience alignment is a really big thing for brands. If your audience is their target customers, especially for any of you who have big audiences within like Gen Z and for us, you know, big presences of, you know, followers here in North America, I think that that is really worth telling a brand up front too, because if they are looking to get their product in front of the right person and your audience is many of the right people who are engaged with you, that's a pretty easy way for a brand to say yes. And the person who's on the receiving end of your pitch email, someone who works in marketing may not have the final say on budget allocation or who gets paid and how many people get paid, but they can at least put you on the radar. And you can think about also adding a call to action to the end of your pitch email and say, I would love to get on a call with you and talk about this more. Or would you let me know what the next steps would be for someone in this position? Because having been on the receiving end of a lot of pitches as a magazine editor myself, a lot of people spend, you know, three seconds looking at these emails. And if they can't figure out right away, who is this person? What do they want? And what do I need to do if I want to do something about it? Then you could be gone without even you know, them meaning to, it's just might be a matter of time. So I would say to them, like, here's two examples of when I last used this in the last six months, here's my audience analytics. And I would really love to get on a call and just learn more about how you work with creators. Because again, maybe on that call, you'll determine that they aren't doing paid brand partnerships right now, but they do have an affiliate program with like a high commission rate. So you could still potentially make money off of it somehow, even if it's not what you wanted. And if you do a good job with that, you can stay in touch and ask about other opportunities. And I don't want to tell anyone what their time is worth. If an affiliate program is not worth it to you, then it's not worth it to you. But then at least, you know, also. And so then if, you know, they don't have the budget for me, maybe then I can just go on to the next one and, and see from there. But I think in terms of pitching, first look at what you already use in your life. So if that's you're a beauty creator what products do you love if you're a home decor creator where do you buy your furniture and and think about that because likely you'll already have an example of that type of content that'll help them picture what would it be like to work with this person that's really good advice you've shared so much advice from your specific experience um, one question we always like to ask though is what's a piece of advice that has stuck with you that someone else gave you along the way that you could pass on to our listeners. Is there anything that comes to mind? You know, the first magazine internship I did at Mary Claire when I was in the fashion closet and I did a little exit interview with my intern supervisor, they had like really overhired interns that semester. And he said to me, you know what the funny thing is though, everyone here who's here is going to be someone in five years. Everyone who you've encountered in this is going to work at a PR company or work for a marketing agency or be casting models or doing something, whether or not they did a good job here or deserve it, you know, everyone here is going to end up somewhere. And so stay in touch with these people and like, don't burn bridges. And I really do think that in something like this, your network is everything and just be nice to everyone. You never know what someone else is going through. I think you can obviously stand your ground or walk away from opportunities that aren't worth it to you. But 
keep the door open just because you never know. I have a lot of former interns who interned for me at Nylon who now are like magazine editors or who are now self-employed and doing their own thing too. And it's just amazing how big, but how small this whole world is. I love that. I, I think that's great advice. Yeah. Last question here for you. We like to ask all of our guests this, who's making waves right now and why? So many great people. I'll shout out my friend, Lisette Calviero. She is mm -hmm. also a content creator and a marketing expert. She has worked on the brand and agency side in marketing before and now creates content full-time and is also kind of like an influencer educator like myself. I just love how real she is. I love following her content. And she's also someone who is fighting for, you know, better pay rates for influencers, for the power of micro-influencers. And I just really love her energy in posts. Like you can really feel like you're connected to her through her content. And I'm really excited by everything she's doing. She's awesome. We've actually had her on the show, I think, last season, and yeah. she was so great. She's the so best. That's Didn't she just one. move away from New York? She's about She's to in, move like, to Denver. Denver. I'm devastated, <laughs> but I'm sure oh, I'm sure we'll cross paths at some point. That's awesome. Well, Austin, this has been so valuable. Thank you so much for being so generous with your knowledge and sharing so much of your experience. We really appreciate it, and I know it's going to be super valuable for everyone who listens. Thank you both for having me on and for creating this awesome resource. I am excited to share this with everyone. Thank you.